We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. Yo, fellas. How's everybody? Man, that intro always makes me feel hype. It, it makes me feel like we're supposed to do something afterwards. <laughs> you know? We're supposed to jump up or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that is, that is some hype music. That is some hype music. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that shirt that Ray got on. That's a nice shirt. You know, was it Colorado? It, it says uh, peop- something about people and whatnot. That was dope. Uh-huh. Um, well, it was until he left. Kind of over that mountain. It's all good. How you doing, Street? Talk to us, brother. You hey, good. man, doing doing well, man. Just you know, long weekend. You know, tomorrow is Dr. King's, uh, you know, recognized birthday, right? And you know, we'll talk a little bit about that on the on the show today, particularly like how we should actually be teaching them. I sometimes feel like it's you know we'll get into this later. It's uh really I have a dream speech day, but really just that one line. One day I'll dream. The boys and you know, girls right. will hold their hands, you know. It's <laughs> just like there's more to that, you know. There's more. To, there's more to it than just far more than that. I'm wondering, and this is a bad thing to say because this is starting off with the bad take. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering if it's time. Like, first of all, we fought real hard for there to be a holiday. Mm-hmm. I, I remember by the it. time I get to Arizona, yeah, I remember, right? Yeah, <laughs> by the time I, get, I can remember Arizona was a holdout. Everybody was a holdout. The president was a holdout. Nobody wanted to do it. We should have put a sunset on that. Why? I wonder if it's. I wonder if it's time to end it. No. 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 Yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder. I'll, I'll expand it. Expand. No, it. See, see what but happens you want, is you want when they, they. Why? Because of how it's being used, or this is what I want a sunset. They. So so you killed him, right? Mm-hmm. You killed him, and he wasn't popular when you killed him for. His uh, opposition to militarism, racism, um, poverty, all the things that he would still be fighting today if he was alive. Ninety two. He'd be 90 something years old, whatever Mm -hmm. today. And we have went so far the other direction that this becomes an annual time where everybody gets to, like, get out of jail free card for the year. Mm -hmm. Like all the corporations, all the 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 fine looking people in their suits get to have breakfasts. They get to come (laughs) together for a man they despised. Mm. Let's just be real. Mm. Now, two thirds, right? Two thirds, I think. Bruh, come on. I mean, like this, we're living his nightmare. And when he said we should make it a choice every year, you're going to do the I dream or you're going to do the I fear I'm integrating my people into a burning house. Mm. Which one you going to do? And I think the burning house one the house is on fire right now, bro. The, the <laughs> dream is let the dream be. Let the dream be what it's going to be, but you don't get to get out of get out a black jail free card every year because <laughs> you done brought Julian Malvo to come speak to you for ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars. Just stop it. It's over. I feel you. I feel Ray, you. Ray, you coming in on some mess, man. Hey, man. Raise back. <laughs> Raise back. Let's just do a quick whip around. You I, know. Great, uh, I, gave you a, I gave you a big old uh, like like shout out and then you like disappeared. I was saying I like gone. that shirt, brother. That shirt is, I like that, brother. I thought he went to change the shirt, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, shout out to my mama. She sent me uh she sent me some shirts. She was like, Yo, I don't like how you be showing up on screen and whatnot. You know, that's not really your personality. Uh, now I'm trying to remember what you were wearing. I gotta go back and check the tape, see what you were wearing. But shout out to Mom Dukes, good looking out. You know, hey, Reeve, Reeve, your outfits consist of three different shirts. <laughs> All right, but I still love you though. Yeah. Um, what's happening? Not much. How you feel, man? We just quickly go around the horn. Our guest is is uh we're about to bring him on. So let's just, you know, go around the horn and, and how y- how y'all feel on this Sunday evening. Episode 98, yo. I'm hyped. Ooh, I'm hyped. 98. Man, I know we getting there, man. Uh yes, I can we real quick, man. Oldsmobile. I feel good, man. I'm happy to be here with y'all. I mean, again, uh King King Day means a lot to me. Um, I'm really blessed. I'm happy for this day tomorrow to have it just to reflect. Uh, I re-upped on my cigars and my and my nice wine to enjoy. Um, and and uh, I watched uh, One Night in Miami and I had some some homies, like some young some youngins back in Oakland. And they just was like they watched it. They had questions. They was like, wait, what was all this stuff about uh, 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 the minister's house in Chicago and, and Muhammad Ali and all these people? So I went by because I go by there every now and then to check out the homes and I just took pictures for them. So um, and I sent it to them and just showed them like all these brothers live like between two and five blocks uh, from each other. Like uh the, the the minister's house is like two blocks from Muhammad Ali Chicago home, which is like a, a block away from Barack Obama's home, which you can't drive through. Still, you need it's still presidential detail. Really? And, yeah, yeah. Oh, you got. Wow. I'll send you the pictures. And then um, Sam Cook lives like ten minutes from there, uh, from where he was. And then you know, and I grew up a few just walking distance from Fred Hampton. Man, my grandmother uh, used to watch him when he was younger. So Fred Hampton, my parents. Both my mom, my dad, my aunt, uh, and Doc Rivers, they all went to the same high school. They all went to Proviso East. Um, so I was just trying to get them that little bit of history out there, man. It was cool. I had a good day, man. Cool, cool, cool. What about you, Stuart? I am good, man. You know, it's just, just I gave you all my bad take to Your start the take. night off with. Though. Right, yeah, right. my bad take. So, like, you know, whereas Charles is excited about Dr. King Day, I'm excited about us reexamining how they killed him and how, like, the problems that and the problems that he died for mm. are really on fire right now. So mm. when he talked about the I want to hear I have a dream tomorrow. I want to hear the burning house one. Mm. I want to hear the one about militarism, racism, sexism, all the isms coming back to revisit us like like their new strains of COVID. Right. We thought racism was bad two years ago, four years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago. And it just keeps coming back. We don't have a vaccine yet. But anyways, that's how I'm doing, brother. How you doing? Good, good, good. Ankram, what's up, New York? Hey, I defer my time to the speaker. (laughs) <laughs> run with it Sharif run yeah, Just I, do I, it, am, run. I am listen we're, we're excited about uh you know th- this episode we got our brother DeRay McKesson on and you know just gonna do a quick intro to him you know for those who have not uh you know who don't know this brother and his work or those who do just a quick reminder, you know, that one uh, brother DeRay is a civil rights activist. He focuses primarily on, on issues of innovation, equity, and justice. He was born in Baltimore, be more city. Ankrum had a little stand more down stand there. Up, up the hill, stand up. <laughs> I, I do. I knew he was going to hop in there, you know, uh, you know, one DeRay, he's been an a- a activist, 
you know, since he was a teenager, you know, advocating for children, youth, families. You know, he's a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as a co-founder of Campaign Zero. He's been praised by President Obama for his work as a community organizer, and he's advised officials at all levels of government as well as internationally. Um, and he continues to provide capacity to activists, organizers, influencers, um, and trying to make an impact out in out in these streets. You know, uh, part of his, uh, you know, what spurred him on was the death of Mike Brown and the subsequent protests and and uprisings in Ferguson, Missouri. That's an uprising for 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 justice, you know, not like, you know, the nonsense that was going on in the Capitol that, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit. He's been a key player in the work to confront these systems and structures that have led to mass incarceration and police killing of black and, and other uh, people of color. OK, he's, he's a host of the award-winning weekly podcast, Pod okay. Save the People, uh, with our sister okay. Kai is on there as well, and our sister Britt was on there before, and um, you know, and that, that pod creates space for conversation about the most important issues of the week related to justice, equity, and identity. Um, look, DeRay has been on national media outlets, you know, Daily Show, Colbert Report, NPR, MSNBC, CNN, and tons of others. Um, he's been featured on the cover of The Advocate, Ad Week, Attitude Magazine, and been in a host of publications from Vogue and Vanity Fair to Vice and, of course, the uh, major newspaper outlets. Um, he's a board member of Rock the Vote and was named one of the world's greatest leaders of Fortune magazine in 2015 and one of the 30 most influential people on the Internet by Time magazine. And, and with so all we, that, you missed something, too. Keep going. But no, tell me. That. If we were going to have a civil rights activist come on this show. Mm hmm. DeRay McKesson is going to be one of the only ones in the United States that can come on here and talk about one of the things that we care about most, which is education. He was an educator. And yeah. not from an abstract point of view, but from the point of view of understanding intimately how a school district works and how it doesn't work, how a classroom works and how it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Now, you can fill up our docket with many civil rights activists, but very few of them can tell you how a school district works or how a classroom works or doesn't work. So there you go. Did you want bread? Did you? Just had to add that on. And no, I appreciate that. And that, that actually ties in. But before we jump in, you know, I uh, want to welcome you, uh, brother. Thanks for coming on. It's good to be here. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk. Now, my first question, you know, I just where where's the vest, bro? <laughs> uh, it's inside. You know, who wears a vest inside? It's, it's, the you. vest is actually, it's a real vest, so it's stuffed with down. So it's if down. I, it's if I wear it on dudes, then I'll be sweating and it'll be, that's just weird, you know? Uh, you. But I did, I wore blue in, in honor of the vest today. I feel you. I feel you. Well, listen, we're going to jump right in, you know, and, and thanks for coming in. We know you were recording, you know, uh, you know, your own uh, podcast right before jumping in. And, you know, this today we wanted to kind of jump into, you know, what is a revolutionary education? And because of your background, not only as a as an educator, but you're also in central office. So you got to lead a classroom and then as well serve as a leader in, in district office. Um, and so, you know, for us, like what is revolutionary education? Why is it needed? And what needs to happen? You know, like what are the barriers? How do we make a revolutionary education experience for our, our youth. Ah, that's such a big, you know, I'm interested to see what, what everybody has to say. You know, I'm always mindful that the best teachers are always skill builders, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm worried about ever since the protest started in 2014 is that there were a lot of people in schools and classrooms that felt like they needed to like 
make their kids be protesters and it's like really you need to just be a great teacher right you need to like teach the history make sure that kids have skills and then like you know will that will lead them to the path so when i think about like the most incredible educations that i've ever seen are ones where like young people walk out with like a set of skills that they might not have had before or like like skills yeah just like like comprehension you know like uh-huh. you know i'm i live in baltimore and you know we had schools where no kid was proficient right like uh-huh. we had that was a real thing so when we think about going from one percent proficient to 50 percent, like that's a that's not insignificant you know um and i think about those i worry that sometimes people get too far away from making sure our, our students have like the core skills they want to do all this cool stuff and it's like yeah, you can know a lot. And if you can't read, it's sort of like, eh, I don't really know, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, so I worry about, I, wor- I do worry about that a bit. No, that, that's a, you know, great point. You know, the, uh, I had a former teacher and that's, uh, you know, I shared this story on, t- on Twitter, but I, former teacher, she went to a university, she was getting her, um, you know, her master's. And in one of the, uh, you know, one of the classes, the professor asked the class, you know, um, hey, what's more important? Would the kids be able to read or, you know, some question like that they be woke and everybody except her raised their hand about being woke. And she was just like, if they're literate, like they'll they will be woke. Like that is the essence. Um, the revolutionary will be literate, as you know, as one right. of our favorite <laughs> as that, uh, you know, uh, Stuart, uh, you know, printed. Right. And so but that but the class and these were all, you know, teachers. And their understanding of, of, you know, what's the revolutionary aspect, you know, when James Baldwin says, you know, uh, teaching black children is a revolutionary act. You know, I'm pretty sure he's talking about being literate, numerate, knowing the history and so on and so forth. Um, Ankram, you've been putting out a couple of, you know, tweets that's talking about if you're doing this, but your kids can't read and things like that. Talk about that. uh, What you've been uh, that message you've been trying to send out. Bro, I live this life, man. I'm about this life, so I ain't trying to do nothing, man. It's my man, my man, love it. Right. Uh, but but you know, it, it's pretty much uh, similar to what you're saying. It's like, yo, you you want these kids to be able to do this, you want them to be able to do that, and you're talking about educating the whole child, man. I don't want to hear shit about educating the whole child if my kid can't read on grade level for the whole uh, 13 years that they're experiencing school, right? Because like anything else, kind of defeats the purpose. Because you know, if you have these kids that are behind the eight ball. And they're in interventions for, for for all their educational careers or whatever. It's like what 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 do, what do you want from it? It's like they're losing hope. They're gonna lose hope, right? They can't be with their peers that are on grade level or whatever. They're always gonna uh, approach the situation like it's a the, with a defeatist type attitude or whatever. So I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for y'all's kids. I don't want that for nobody's kids. Right. So you know, let's look at this whole reading uh, reading as a science thing, and let's uh, let's start teaching reading and in these ed- education programs. Or whatever at the universities and stuff, and uh, and let's be open to feedback in terms of you know parents telling you 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 can't teach. If parents are telling you that their kids ain't learning, then you know these parents know, right? And so let's let's set up some space for these parents to be able to talk about what they're getting and what they're not getting for their kids. Mm. Stuart Cole. Stuart, you muted. See, I said all kinds of profound stuff. I know, I know. See, see, bro. Uh, I was just about to say, you know, Dr. Fuller has said to us, Dr. Howard Fuller has said to us often that education should prepare young people for the practice of freedom. And he was talking about like Paulo Freire's um, idea about what education should be. So, of course, everyone on this 
show will agree that kids need to know how to read. We say it all the time at a, at a low bar, right? Like it's just at a very basic level, that's such a low bar. Let's say that you do know how to read now. When I hear you talk to Ray about core skills, like how are you going to translate that into to core activist skills too? Like you can read now, you can decode the world, um, but not everybody knows how to organize. Not everybody knows how to, not not all the students are going to know what to do when they walk out, for instance, of their school because of their conditions um, or or how, even how to organize a, a walkout. Do you see like a translation between um, what we teach in schools, teaching kids to be literate, of course, but also how to defend themselves, how to intellectually defend themselves, how to participate in their government, how to, you know, how to be a citizen um, beyond just knowing how to read. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when we all talk about literacy, we are we are we are necessarily talking about comprehension too, right? The ability to not only sort of read the words, but understand them. Uh, and when I think about the the organizer skills that you highlight, or like what that looks like, it is, this is why we often, and this is one of the things I worry about too with, uh, with what's happening with the pandemic is that, you know, for me, student government was really powerful that if I hadn't had student government, uh, I wouldn't have been able to like learn a host of things about what it meant to be on a team and what it meant to get critical feedback and what it meant to plan. And like, those are things that I had adults like help me process and understand. And like, that was actually really, that's beautiful. The other thing I'd say, and you know, I, I did used to work in the central office. I was a chief human capital in the school system is uh, one of the things that I, that I, I don't know why I'm starting with all these worries, but one of the, another thing that I'm always mindful of <laughs> Um, is that when in the public conversation, we talk about students, it always is sort of like this cookie cutter, I don't know, kid in a district. Whereas at the, at the district level, we were always like, yeah, you know, that one classroom was great. And like, you did a really cool thing there. But I'm worried about 80,000 kids. I'm trying to figure out a solution for 90,000 kids, right? Mm -hmm. So that means all of my transient kids, all my, the homeless students, the young people in the autistic program, like all of those young people are equally deserving of all of the things too. And I do want us to complicate the way we talk about like public education because I worry that it never actually touches like the range of kids that show up in our schools, but it sort of is like this, I don't know, very sort of superficial idea of a young person. Mm -hmm. That's a great yeah. point. I mean, yeah. our kids are showing up in many different ways and we are always talking about the theoretically struggling, um, pretty racially redundant, homogenous in our mind, like a very stereotypical student, actually, to, be, to, to tell you the truth. And we've talked a little bit about this on Freedom Friday, Elmeki, like that mm -hmm. you have geeks, you have nerds, you have jocks, like like you have a range of black life in student life that we never talk about. We talk about it in white life, white student life. We give them a range. But we don't think about the range of black kids that we have showing up uh, in our schools. I don't know what we do about that, but um, we do. We should change our language, I think, in some ways. Cole, hey, throw that thing to Charles. Uh, can oh, I? Man. Can I finish? All right, Cole. How does how does that? Uh, <laughs> you know, like you just jump it hey, and interrupt it. Right, my back, man. New York, New York, New York, New York, nasty. <laughs> Chill out. Um, relax. Hey, look at that. That your shirt. Take a mirror East picture Coast. and just relax. New York, nasty. Cole, how does this relate, particularly with you know the uh, energy converters? Like, how are some of those conversations about them preparing, being prepared, and um, you know for their future and and being those activists? Uh, really agents of their own destiny. How does that all play out? 
Yeah, man. And, and just real quick, we'd be remiss. Uh, we mentioned uh, Howard Fuller. Happy birthday to our OG, who mm. we all love and know. Uh, mm. That brother kicking and still out there raising all types of good hell on, on behalf of our people. So happy birthday, Dr. Fuller. We all love you over here. Um, I would say in energy converters, um, and we just talked about this on, on Chris's show, was we try to like, when we talk about building the agency of young people, that includes everything that Ray was talking about, making sure you can read, that you are both, that you can do math, that you can do these things. And also you have like really dope, like critical thinking skills. You know, one of the things that I'm trying to do in 2021 is take all these things that we've overcomplicated and bring it back to the center, bring it back to being simple. All right. Like are you, are our kids thoughtful? Do they know what quality is for them? Um, so when we talk about energy converters, what we try to do is show them, a bunch of different realities, right? Because a lot of our kids in schools, I've only been to their school. They don't know if they get in quality or whatnot, you know? And, and, and the story that I shared with Chris was that, you know, I had a 383 at one school and then I transferred, you know, my last year and I, I thought I was AP English ready. And then I didn't, I got in that class where they didn't lower the standard and I didn't know what a thesis was. So how the hell can you be the revolutionary or all these things, you know, um, when you only teach kids to be quote unquote woke or activists, what you got is a lot of people screaming and yelling without having actual solutions that can benefit all those kids. So that's one of the things that we try to be aware of, right? It's like, you know, how are you also being able to do those things academically and be okay social emotionally, but also look at social issues and have a real, you know, and have real solutions and bring real solutions to the table and communicate those solutions. So I'm glad we had good brother D-Ray on. I just want to say. D-Ray, D-Ray, D-Ray. Well, I, I, okay. I feel like I may have spent more time with him than you have, but I feel you, brother. But I, I would make sure I say his name right. But I just wanted to show him love. It was in the notes. I just wanted to show him love. <laughs> I just, was it I in the slack, to, bro? <laughs> I, want, I wanted to show him love, though. This, but let me tell you why I wanted to show him love. Because he always show love back. And it's a lot of folks, you know, when they say don't, you know, like as a kid and you got people that you look up to or whatever, you know what I'm saying? And you meet some of those folks and they not the same. They don't show that same kind of love. So the brothers always made time when I've needed them to, whether it was for me or something I was doing for my students. And I wanted to highlight that uh, because I think that sometimes that gets left out, uh, especially when people try to attack or come for homies or whatever the case is. So um, just know I got your back, man. And thanks for being here with us. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. But something that you said made me think about, you know, I used to run an after school center. I started, I opened up an after school center on the West side of Baltimore a decade ago. And I'll never forget when we, when, when it launched, uh, because it was this reminder. And I worked in after school, I've worked in after school at a couple of places. Um, and one of the things that I had that I think happens with black and brown and poor kids specifically is that the places that we construct for either their learning or their like after schoolness is a whole lot of love and that's it. So we're like, you know what? We just want all the kids to be off the corner. So they're here, they're like with us for five hours and it's no skill. We teach it. We are not, we're not exploring. We're not exposing. We literally are like, this is love. And it's like, that's not love, right? Like that actually like hurts our kids in the end. And I've been in a lot of classrooms too, where like, you know, we all know this, but the bigotry of low expectations and they'll be like, well, you know, he had like a really hard, and you're like, yeah, he still needs to like learn that skill. Right. So we need to deal with the hard social reality that might be present. And we need to make sure that the skill is present too, but we don't sacrifice it in the name of loving kids. And I feel like that, that happens often with our kids. 
Yeah, yeah. We we I think we talked about this on on uh on a previous show where you can you know love kids to you know to dumbness, right? Like they know less because of your love. When love is actually, you know, if you if if I love my child, that means I feel accountable for their outcomes. I feel accountable for their success. And that should translate into the school building, right? Like that 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 love spurs something. You know, it spurs me how I plan, how I think about, how I connect with them, the relationships I build with them and their communities. And, you know, without that, it's not genuine, right? Like it's not an authentic love. It's something people say and maybe it, you know, feels good, um, particularly for the adult. But will that love, you know, carry that to help uh, spur that child forward? Will it help them, um, you know, move? And, And speaking of just like this education and like just how this is all, you know, formed, you know, one of the things that I that I think about education and if it's revolutionary should help people connect the dots. Like children should be able to kind of look at what happened in the past and the connection um, to the present as well as the future. Like what, how they see themselves, how they have, you know, a positive racial identity that they understand that, you know, what some of the blueprint is. And, you know, that, that leads me to the next thing, like this, this understanding of history. Right. And then, you know, like, what happened at the Capitol? Like, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is unprecedented. But man, it looked really familiar. <laughs> it looked a lot of that stuff looked really familiar. And and so we want to talk about this, particularly in the context of now, what are teachers, you know, and if it's somebody at the at the after school program, what should adults be talking about uh, with their youth, mm-hmm. uh, particularly around in this uh, this capital thing where it's not America, but we all know that, you know, angry white mobs is very much America. Yeah. I mean, and, and thinking about what you just said, uh, you know, the irony is that there were a lot of teachers that were <laughs> there that were at the Capitol. Yeah, bro. Yeah, bro. And I think we're going to get more than that, more of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, crazy. Well, well, you, you know, a third of them voted for Trump. So a third right. of teachers voted for Trump and and actually two thirds are lying. So um, <laughs> so you got a lot of teachers out there. They all voted for Trump. You know, outside of the cities, outside of the cities, get them outside of the cities, you know, whatever. Anyways, that's all. Chris. It's all me. It's, it's all me. And, and I deserve my cynicism. I'm old enough for my cynicism. So um um, but I do want to, you know, just build on your question a little bit, because I do think it's the right question. What should they be teaching? Because if you have lived any amount of time, you know, when, when they were desegregating buses, you had pictures of people like um, beating up folks with flagpoles. Right. To stop desegregation. Right. Years ago. Not in if the you, liberal you know, town so of Boston. Not in Boston. When I, listen, if you have lived decade to decade, this is my only point. I was born in the 60s. So if you have lived decade to decade, you have seen a version of white mobs um, in the name of patriotism or in the name of the country or in the name of white supremacy, attacking people or attacking institutions or attacking something sacred to preserve power. That is not that's not new. Right. But our teachers can't wake up on Monday morning and pretend like it's the first time that they've ever had a story like this. Right. If they are, then then our kids have the wrong teachers. That's just my point of view. Right. Um, um, We've seen this decade by decade by decade. I can show you case studies of it. If you haven't seen it before, stop teaching. Mm -hmm. So, you know, wait, not stop teaching, but just (laughs) you are invited to be successful elsewhere. 
competitive. How about that? DeRay, talk about those vacancies, all those vacancies that Chris about. That's that's a lot of vacancies. You know, I think the nuances of the details of, I think the nuances of the details of what's going to happen at the district level is just, you know, I don't think we've had that conversation. So I think more teachers are staying now because they, because like the job market's bad. And Mm -hmm. and then if that changes and then there's like a wave, uh, you know, I don't even know what it would look like. In Baltimore, I hired 700 teachers a year. I don't know what that would look like to do over Zoom like that. It was hard enough to do it before. I don't know what Zoom documents I would make it better. But Chris, to your point, um, you know, I, I know that there were, I've known teachers who have struggled to talk about white supremacy because their rationale would be like, that was so long ago, right? Like, should we really be scaring young people when we bring up lynching and plantations and enslavement? Cause that was so long ago and cotton picking was so long ago. And what the Capitol reminds us is what we've all known that like, you know, it's still here, but it'll be interesting to see that translate itself into lessons in the classroom because it disrupts that myth that like this happened so long ago and that this is like real life for people. And you all know, you heard stories of teachers when Trump got elected, how like, you know, I talked to a lot of teachers and principals who elementary school, they're like kids came in and they were like, is my friend going to get deported? You know, like what we say as organizers is that young people often have the experiences before they have the language. And part of our work is not to penalize them for not having the language, but to honor the experience. And I think in this moment, like we should deal with what it's like for young people to see this happen. It's on TV. Everybody sees it in the middle of the day and they may not have the language to describe it, but they saw it, you know, and we should be teaching about how this is a part of a, a legacy of white supremacy, not sort of a one off. Mm-hmm. Mm. <clears throat> right. Talk about that. Like you, you're training some other principles and things like that. How how might you help them if they're nervous or they don't know you know, what to say to their, you know, to their, uh, their staff about like, what, what would you, how would you characterize this or how did you characterize it for your staff? Um, Cause I know you were communicating about this um, early on. Yeah. So, so real quick, before we even get to how I, I communicate to the principals, where's the super producer? Well, I don't have the main screen. What's happening? Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, <laughs> there he is. That's my guy. All right. So one thing I want to touch on real quick, though, right, is that but before we even get to the Capitol, right, there's some things that are happening in these classrooms that we are not talking about. Right. And so one of those things that we're not talking about is just how folks just arbitrarily give kids uh, grades. Right. And so like you, you got kids that are writing essays and stuff that they aren't being provided rubrics. Right. So they don't have any kind of understanding of what the expectation is for them. Right. And so then if you're not giving them critical feedback in terms of like how to improve upon the work that they've done, then how are they going to improve for the for, for the next assignment? So that's kind of setting them up for failure in the sense that I don't even know what I need to do differently in order to improve my grade. And that's what's happening in a multitude of these classrooms. And nobody's talking about it. Right. And so I feel like it, it, it behooves us to have these kinds of conversations because, you know, our reach kind of goes far in terms of, you know, uh, professors that are listening to our show or whatever, that people that are adjacent to uh, university programming and stuff. And we got to teach these teachers. Shit, I don't want to spend the whole first half of my year training teachers that have been in four year programs. I don't want to do that no more. I have no interest in doing that. And I mean, so you got to teach more than the teachers, though. But you, but you I was going to say that, with, but I, I, I hear I hear what Ray's saying, and I, but I think you know there was a lot of people 
I heard a lot of teachers saying, this isn't who America is, right? And it's like, wait a second. And especially, <laughs> it's exactly who it is. The problem, right? But, but like, I mean, I did a whole a, a whole lesson on it. I'll, I'll make sure we put it up on the on the A Black Hands YouTube page because we went down it. Like, Wim, the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898, this stuff isn't new. White people are not used to not getting their way here in the United States. And when they don't get their way, they tear shit up. But it's always, well, look at them black folks and look at what Black Lives Matter did and look at what they did. First off, don't you ever, ever, one, that wasn't really Black Lives Matter that was doing that to Targets, but don't ever compare Target to the Capitol building. Let's just let's just start there with some common sense. Like I know, Target is way more important. <laughs> but look, <laughs> I'm just going to run down just a few dates for people. I'm going to just run off five real quick. Mm. The Wilmington Insurrection, 1898. The New York City Draft Riots, 1863. The Richmond Bread Riots, in 18, in, uh, that was in the 1800s. The Battle for Blair Mountain was 1921. And then the Battle of Athens in 1946. There is a lot... Of, of really strong examples of these folks tearing stuff up. But again, black people, brown people are the people that get called violent, the people that get called rowdy, the people that get all these names. The difference is the victor tends to write history and they tend to erase stuff. So if I see a teacher, especially a history teacher in a high school saying that we not like this, I really hope that you pull your kid out of there and have a serious conversation. I mean, you have a responsibility as a teacher. And if you take credit for the poor black kid and the poor brown kid that gets an A, who probably would have got an A without you, then you don't get to hand off the kids that you fail at that's not getting the stuff mm-hmm. that they need. You, better say uh, you don't get you don't get to have it both ways. It's either the system all the way, you know what I'm saying, and you got some agency in it, or you don't. So I think that that's a really important point that we need to nail here. You know what I mean? Because we have precedent. This ain't the first time this kind of stuff has happened. Yeah, you know, and you know, Malcolm said at one point, like, of all our studies, you know, history is best qualified to reward our research, right? And so that should be a, a you know, like a really rallying cry to to make sure that we're grounded in what happens. You know, the stuff that Cole described. You know, you could also like look up teachers like race riots. You know, they would often describe race riots when it was black people just being attacked. It wasn't a race riot. It was angry white mobs attacking black people. That's not a race riot. You know, where you kind of erase, you know, the the instigators, erase those who are in power, the erase those who have the backing of the government and 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 police officers and and the army. Like that's what was happening over and over and over again. And not just not just deep south, not just D.C., Uh in Boston, in Philadelphia and plenty other places in New York. Like these are things were going on. Right. And so this this whole black experience, you know, and this is just, you know, I I read this article. um, you know, that I share with you guys, because I just thought about like how it pertains w- with education. So for folks, the synopsis of the article is this doctor, a black doctor in Washington state, uh, Seattle, beloved. Right. Like everybody says that, you know, what he was able to accomplish was was fantastic. He was connected to the community, um, even the the people, the board and, and whoever his supervisors are, his colleagues. They all affirm that this was uh, just an outstanding caring, uh, beyond competent, just a brilliant, uh, you know, medical professional. And what he said was at some point, the racism became so deep for him, so problematic that he had to make this this horrendous choice that I, I think, and it just, I thought about so many educators 
you know, uh, leaders and leaders just in any space where he said, you know, what, I had to decide to to leave and leave people I cared about, the, the people I was serving, the children, the community behind, because I was just I was I was beating my head against the wall, telling them like, hey, what you're doing is racist or, hey, this needs to be improved or, hey, you're you're being disrespectful to the community. And at some point he left and, and, and liberal Washington state. Washington State, yeah, right? Liberal, Seattle, liberal right? Like, Washington, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. And, and as I was reading, I was just thinking about like how many other black leaders are in that space where you're like, I don't want to leave. You know, I, I heard it just the other day from somebody I was I was talking to. Right. He said, I didn't want to leave the students behind. Um, but at the same time, I just felt like I couldn't go anywhere. And I I'm, I was, you know, so I wanted to open that up for, for our brothers and DeRay, you as well. Like just like what is that? Have you experienced that? And what could that mean? You know, this excruciatingly complex decision about staying and remaining in oppressive situations or feeling like you're abandoning students uh, when you leave? Yeah, go ahead, brother. No, we was, I was saying we starting with you, the guest of honor, brother. Oh, so before I say that, you know, one of the things I'm interested in when we think about how do we teach uh, about the Capitol and, and white supremacy, is there two things that come out of this moment with Zoom school that I think are really interesting? One is what happens to parents when we go back to buildings, that there are a lot of parents who are closer to what is happening with their child's education in a way that they might not have been before, not because they didn't care or didn't love their kid, but because they are like now a Zoom principal, like they're every, every parent is a principal in some ways. And like, you know, I know parents who are like, why did they teach that? Or they're like, wow, I didn't even know that you could talk about it in this way. Like, so this question of like, can we organize parents after this? So who will do that given that so many more people are just like closer to it, I think is really interesting. The second is that teachers have had to make a whole host of curricular decisions really differently all of a sudden because there are no textbooks and like they're not the traditional things you do are different. And I and I've seen teachers be really creative with that and parents supplement because like you know, you can't just do textbook things. To answer this question, you know, I when I was a chief in Baltimore, I was 32 or 33, the youngest and, and black and Dr. Santalisa superintendent, she was great. But I do think there's sometimes you can go in and you can do all the change because like you just have the structural power to do it. And then there are other times when you get in, like like the doctor had in this, where you go in and you were just like, up against a wall and up against a wall. And I and I think at a point you have to figure out like how long you can do that battle. When I was in the school system before I was chief, I was in a really senior role, but there were a lot of people who like, I don't know, made decisions I disagree with and like I didn't have any structural power to do anything about it. And at that point I was like, you know what, I'll ride it out, I'll do what's right for kids, I'll fight for kids every day and like we'll pray. Um, but I do think that gets exhausting. You know, I'm hopeful that we can build community so that we can force institutions to do differently. What made me sad about this guy was that there wasn't enough internal pressure to force the institution to change despite his protestations. And then he leaves and like the institution seems to be largely unchanged still. And that's, that is sad. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Breezy, jump in here, man. I don't know what's happening. Right now, we're breezy jumping here. Why, why you want me to jump in, bro? Because, man, like, yo, Stockton ain't passing the rock. 
Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> so, real quick, D-Ray. Uh, you, notice, you notice DeRay didn't say nothing about, this is what I will say about it. You notice he didn't say nothing about his stop here in the Twin Cities, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> right, oh, like, okay. like, right, like, you know. I forgot stop all here. about that. That was hard. Right, see, <laughs> this is my point. This is my point. Like, 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 and he left us. He left us, you know, feel like, oh, my God, he left. Like, this brother came here. Twin Cities is a place that is super, super liberal, um, has more resources and money than it thinks it has. Um, we have school districts that would love to have our, our resources. They would love to have what we have to offer children. And with all that we have going for us, uh, fairly liberal city, uh, very college educated, um, super down with so many kind of progressive things or whatnot. Lots of resources. We really do have resources. Um, we're the Silicon Valley of health and human services. So we've got all kinds of stuff going for us that maybe Baltimore wouldn't have or maybe that, you know, some other places wouldn't have, even as they're doing more with what they have than we are. Right. Like they're doing better teaching in, in some places than we're doing. Right. Um, in the places we might look down our nose at. So, so right, why would you forget about us? Why, why said, would you yeah. not talk? You know, it's funny you say that. I'm like, well, I got hate. That's an example of self-care. You probably you just like, that. Hard. my first meeting, first week in Minneapolis, I come in and I'm the senior director of human capital. I'm in charge of all staffing for all positions, superintendents, assistant superintendents, secretaries, teachers, everybody. And there was an ESOL plan. There's this plan to get ESOL teachers. And the plan didn't make sense. Uh, it just What's didn't make ESOL sense. Teacher, brother? What's an ESOL teacher? Uh, English is a second language. So there's a, there was this plan to get them. So I look at it and I'm like, we need to revise it. So we have, a, we have a meeting with the ESOL people who work in academics. And I just say like, hey, I just got here. I looked over the plan. We're going to come back with like a revision for it today. It's a meeting like six of us. One of my first meetings. And, and the woman goes, she looks at me straight ahead. I'm like, 28 maybe and she goes just so you know because you're new here doesn't mean we're doing anything different and I'm I'm like I'm like if this was Baltimore we literally would be yelling at like it would be this would be World War 5 we would be like full blown fighting mm-hmm and I just look at her and I don't know, you know, I'm, I have my Baltimore school system rage in me at that moment. And I just look at her in the meeting and I go, you will never talk to me like that again. <laughs> and we just sit and the room is like, you could cut it. And, like, and I'm like, I got no more meeting. I just got here. This is like my fifth day. I have no more meeting. <laughs> in this room all day long. And then she's like, I'm really sorry. And I'm like, I am too. So that was wild. But I'll never forget one of my, one of like the most important sort of stories I guess in relationship to this question is in Minneapolis, there was no process for selecting principals. So like we would just sort of move people into principal roles and it, it was weird. So I was like, you know what, first step, we're going to do a, a teaching reflection. So they're going to look at a video of somebody teaching and write feedback to the teacher. This is not, I mean, you have probably done this for 10, 15 years, but in 2014, this was really novel in Minneapolis. So we do it. <laughs> And we make a rubric and we do all this stuff and everybody fails. Everybody. It's like a nightmare. So, you know, this isn't, it was just a nightmare. Everybody fails assessment. And it's not hard. The video literally, like, I wish I could show you the video is a teacher teaching and she goes over the objectives. It's like five objectives for the day. A kid raises his hand and says, are we really learning all of those things today? And she goes, absolutely. I mean, it was like a setup. This wasn't very hard. 
And people did really poorly. So poorly though, that we, there are a lot of people that like didn't become principals that year because of this new assessment. And in a level of white privilege that still shocks me, which is why I forgot all about it. <laughs> uh, there's this one principal, there's a one, one person who wanted to be a principal and she did not pass the assessment. To deal with the backlash, the assistant superintendents made it so I had to personally sit down with everybody who failed and walk them through the rubric about how they failed, which was fine. But this one community makes a community meeting. They call an emergency community meeting that I am required to attend at a community center. So I get a call from the superintendent's office like, DeRay, they have questions about the new assessment you made. I walk into an like a like an auditorium with 150 parents who are demanding that I explain why this woman can't. And I'm like, I don't even know how to say it. it's because she can't understand right. instruction. Like I don't she can't read. <laughs> it was like, so I'm like trying to not throw this woman under the bus, but talk about like the rigorous rubric. But I'm like, the, this wasn't hard. The fact that she like doesn't know what instruction looks like should actually concern all of you. You know what I mean? She's a good person. Right. It doesn't make her like a great educator. And like, what are we doing? You know, I feel so vindicated. Now y'all all know why America has a Chris Stewart. <laughs> y'all all know the birthplace of a citizen Stewart. Now there is a level of white privilege in a school system that is failing black and brown students in the Twin Cities that escapes me how it survives year to year without greater scrutiny because we have it resources. Wild. It's crazy. It's I crazy. I got a call one day from somebody being like, uh, DeRay, he, I used to set all salaries. So he goes, I accepted my salary of da 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 da. And I'm like, we didn't make an offer. He said, oh no, somebody in another office called me and told me this is what it's going to be. <laughs> so I literally, I get up out of my desk, I go to the superintendent's desk, and I just say, I don't know what I thought I was doing. I go, only one of us is setting salaries in the school system. I'm happy if he does it, but we both can't do it. And I'm okay not doing it, but we both can't, and I can go. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, we can't, I mean, it was chaos. It was really, it I'm, was. But when you hear this type of chaos, right, and then people get mad when parents choose, I mean, listen, I'm always kids and families before systems. So again, you choose whatever you want that works for your kid. Mm -hmm. And because of what you just described is like when we were, uh, when I was a social worker and we carried this over into education and it worked, I would share with my families what the data said and what their comparables were and just said, look, statistically, they don't think that we can reunify your family. Statistically, they think this is what happens. What that looks like in education, which is what we've done, right? is that we said, look, we started showing kids what their same grade level was getting in high quality schools. And if the teachers didn't have it or the principals didn't have it, we started sending kids back and saying, hey, thank you for this lesson that you've given us, but this is what they learned across town. This is what we're doing. And many of those kids ended up helping change the curriculum inside of their classroom. When I, that's what I'm saying when I talk about agency, right? When it's like, first, we got to equip you so you know that you're getting below par. And I think that that's what that meeting was, right? Where them parents got to see. And I think that we've seen a lot of parents see this now during COVID times because they listening in on their kids' classes and they're not liking what they're hearing. But, you know, in those white schools, in them schools with money, whether they private or, or, or public, those parents are saying, look, this ain't it. And they demanding better. And if those people can't teach up to the standard, then they got to go. You know, it's, it's a lot of nice people in the world. It's a lot of nice people. But if you can't put out a fire, I don't want you showing up in the fire truck if my house is, is burning. You know <laughs> like, let's just, again, let's take very complicated things and bring it back to the simple space. I, mm -hmm. I, I really think there's a lot of people, and DeRay, you know this, man, just from the work that we do and what you get to see. 
there are people that make their bones, that make their money and their names by taking things that can be simple and parents and students could actually understand and overcomplicating it on purpose. They want to give it a new name so they can write a new book. They want to call it something else so they can get on the speaking tour. And what I'm saying is parents and kids, look, I played basketball. It's like teaching a kid how to do a crossover and fadeaways before you teach them the rules of the game and how to do a layup, man. And I think that, like, you got to make sure that you got the basics down if you're teaching my kid. Like, I, and I got to hold you to account. Hmm. Let me let me follow up with, uh, you know, what DeRay was talking about. Have you all been in situations where you felt like, you know what, I'm banging my head against the wall and I have to leave or, you know what, I because of reason X, Y, Z, I, I don't feel like I'm as successful as I could be if I didn't have my right hand shackled to my left foot. But there, you know, I'm going to stick it through. Like what what would cause you, you know, Ray felt like I mean, uh, DeRay mentioned like when he felt like there wasn't he didn't have the power to actually change things, even though he was trying to influence it. What would cause you to say, you know what, despite the the people that I'm serving, I have to leave for my own sanity or hoping somebody else, the next person can do it better. Like what would push you to to make that decision, stay or leave? I think for me, it would be a year, uh, a year or two. um consecutively of me not seeing improvement in student uh in student achievement um that would really i would really beat myself up about that if i didn't see if if, if my students uh across the board were not seeing growth um i think you know if, if it's one grade or if it's isolated to like one one uh, one or two grades then i know that i can come up with a plan to go in and fix it but if it's something that's across the board and it's like more than one year, then I got to hold myself accountable or whatever, because like mm-hmm. I can't sleep at night knowing that my kids are in, in the school that I'm running and they're not learning. And I know a lot of people don't really look at it like that. They won't really like self-assess uh, and hold themselves accountable for kids not learning. But I'm just built from a different cloth, bro. Like I got to make sure that my kids are learning. I got to make sure families are getting what they need. And I got to make sure my, my students are getting what they need as well. Also, uh, and lastly, I got to make sure that teachers are in the best position to to motivate our students. And um, that happens by, you know, clearing some of the obstacles that, you know, that bureaucracies can put in front of teachers uh, in order for them not to be their best selves in the classroom. Cole? Uh, I mean, I you know, I worked in the district and I had a, had a district position. I, I mean, I was really clear on my role in the district that I went to school in. And I, I just knew I was a double agent, man. I just knew every time I was going to go out, I was going to tell these people the truth and I was going to give them the language and I was going to give them the pathway to go ahead and change stuff. I mean, because here's the thing. Systems move slow. And and, and, and and if we're talking about, I mean, the, poverty is not going to end tomorrow and these systems not going to improve tomorrow. I did a talk, bro. Like, look, charter schools go up for renewal every five years. But I, there are district schools that have been bad for 50 years, 50 years. And, Easily. They, and it's baked in excuses. So my thing is, look, what I would tell my teachers when I was working with them is you knew the type of place we was coming into. Like you, you knew what we had kind of happening here. And that's not to put everything on you. Like I can actually work well with staff that are like, you know, we want to get better. We understand this. So we're going to do this thing. But what I can't work with is if you already got a baked in reason and excuse for it, yet you take the praise on those kids that would have been okay with you. So for me, it was, I'm going to be here for a limited amount of time. And while I'm here, I'm going to give as much game away as possible. 
Like, I'm going to give it away as possible. And I think that that's how we got to, like, look at it. You know what I'm saying? Again, my loyalty is not to any system. And, and, and as a teacher, you shouldn't go into these things saying my loyalty is to this school or this system or this or whatever. If you're going to be a revolutionary educator, it has to be to the revolution, which is its people. So what does it look like for you to turn that interest onto people? And so I had to, man, you... I had to push people so hard and go with them to do home visits. And like, y'all have no idea. I mean, y'all do on this panel, but most people out there don't have any idea what these people say about your kids. I've heard teachers blatantly say that kid can't learn. That family can't do it. This, I don't think this can happen. And like, you know what I'm saying? And it's, and it's really disheartening. And it's like, yo, you ain't never challenged them. Like a, a goldfish grows to the size of the bowl, man. You throw that thing in the ocean, it looks different. And and I and I just feel like we got a whole bunch of goldfish bowl schools where it's like just this little bitty thing and these kids don't have any other perspective. So they don't know how robbed they are until they see something different when they get older. And that's why you get all this vitriol. That's why you get these people so upset, you know? So I just try to show comps. The same way when you go buy a house and you're trying to buy a house and they're going to show you five other comparable homes so you can see what the price should look like. I really think that we should start treating our people with more respect uh, and like they, you know, treat them like they care, like the caring parents and students that they are. Bruh, that, you know, one of the things you just mentioned, man, remind me, my mother used to say that that there was no place that she heard people uh, speaking negatively about black children like she did in the teacher's lounge. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, she said that in my earlier in my career, she was like, you know, she's like, this is something, you know, make sure that you uh, are around folks who are about the children who, you know, are about the families that send those children, um, et cetera. Like that's that's super hey, important. Hey, Reef, Reef, what about quick. you, uh, Stuart? Hey, real quick. Uh, keep keep the spotlight on Reef. Reef, it ain't just white teachers that's talking bad about black students. She wasn't in a she's never was in an all white school. So when she was saying that she was she didn't say race yeah. in the schools that she was in um, North Philly and, and West Philly. They were they, they were diverse staff there. Yeah. And, and she, you know, so that kind of thing. Absolutely. But it, uh, hit, it hit different, though. It hit different when 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 it's coming from your own folks, though. Yeah. You know, when you yeah. when you hear somebody black talk about uh, students being deficient and families being deficient or whatever, like that is different if you, you know, if, you, if you're black and you're on the receiving end of, of those types of conversations or whatever. Right. And it's not a new thing. You know, I was, I was reading this book last year called Up South. And what it talks about is how, you know, it's about the history of Philadelphia, a lot of places, you know, labor, politics, civil rights. And they talked about like how the middle class black, you know, Philadelphia had a had a significant number of middle class black folks of, you know, early 1900s. Right. Like they, you know, they it was, you know, a place of, of freedom for a while and, and things like that. And how they would talk about the folks who were coming through the Great Migration or how they were talking about uh, people who look like them, but who were mired in poverty was, you know, like was shameful. And these were things that they would actually publish, you know, it would be like, oh yeah, first uh, published black newspaper, the oldest one. When they were sharing some of the quotes that, that you know, uh, black folks with means would be talking about people who look like them without means. I was like, yeah. wow, this is the same uh, thing. Stuart, real quick, have, have you had to make that decision about, I don't feel like I can accomplish things here. And despite, you know, the, the, folks being served, the families, the mm -hmm. communities, whoever, you know, are they actually better off with you leaving? You know, it's, it's, to me, it's such a complex, uh, complex thing. And, and it can be riddled with guilt. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, man, listen, so one of my prayers that I've had for a long time was always to ask God to put me in a place where I could do my do my work. Mm. Like, so I pray on that oftentimes. Put me in a position to do your will or let me be an instrument of your will or put me in a place where what I because I'm not always going to know what talents I have and what gifts I have, whether it's a match for the space that I'm in. So I pray on it and I go with it. Mm. And um, and when God tells me to give up on a, on a on a certain mission and he's got something else for me, then that's just it. But until I get that feeling or that sense or be until I'm hearing that from my spiritual uh, creator, um, I'm going to make a problem for you. So you're not going to burn me out. Right. Like, like I've been in social services, which is a highly burnout job. I watch people burn out well before me, you know, like like and, and complain about the job and everything else. And uh, I wasn't to that point yet. I had a reservoir that I was tapping into. And if, if, if there was a problem in the system, I was going to be a bigger problem for the system than the system was going to be for me. I will say this much in education and in teaching. I think it was Ed Trust that did the research that basically said that people of color and specifically black educators are the ones who leave mostly because they feel like they can't make a difference, like they can't make a change. When you ask them, when you research and ask them why they left, that is one of the number one reasons um, that they leave is that they feel like the system is inevitable and they can't make a lot of uh, a change and, and difference in it. So, yeah. yeah. So, what's that? As you know, I got a story for that. I, I mean, it. but I do want I do want to say this last thing, though, because uh, um, all of us have seen things in the system. And this is something that actually um, when I was a school board member, I learned things I had never known before. Mm-hmm. And I would always say, I wonder what the public would think if they knew X. So I would start telling the public everything, everything that I could possibly think of. I would start like, oh, this is supposed to be a secret. Once you have sat in teacher contract negotiations, you should demystify that process for the community. Right. You should tell the community what is said in that room with the most important investment that a school district makes, the biggest amount of money they're going to spend. The things that are said about your people in that room should never be a secret to the community. The things that you have heard teachers say, um, and, and DeRay, you could probably like like ch- chime in on this. You interview a thousand teachers. You do hear some things that you know, get to be troubling over time. The public should know those things, right? What, Sharif, what you said about your mom in the, in the teacher's lounge, the public should know what we know. We, we've seen, I, we've heard, but the public should know. I, I want to hear uh, DeRay talk about these exit interviews from uh, from black men in the, in, the, in the systems that you've been in, in HR or whatever. Like, what, what are these folks saying in terms of like why they're leaving uh, the profession? It's hard, you know, Baltimore, um, you know, a lot of the leadership is black. So we weren't seeing like race related things with regard to why people are leaving. People are leaving because they felt underappreciated or they felt um, they felt like the school was sort of like hard or, or, you know, one of the phenomenons happening in Maryland is that, and this made it really hard for us to recruit black teachers is that because there are so few black teachers in the outside counties or the counties surrounding the city, black teachers could just make way more money. They'd essentially get like a signing bonus for being black. And we didn't do, I mean, we're the city of Baltimore. So like everybody's black, all our students are black for the most part. So that was like this weird thing where we were trying to recruit from some of the schools in the city and like the teachers were all, the black teachers were all got to the county and they would say things like, the schools are safer, the kids are better. You know, I was like, that was sort of a weird thing. Um, 
to deal with. You know what I will say in Minneapolis, one of the things that we started doing, we, I built the way that we interviewed. Te- so before we didn't interview teachers, which was not a good thing. So we started interviewing teachers, which was a good thing. I was like, you should probably interview them before we hire them. Uh, so I set up this system for interviewing teachers and we asked a question back then that was like, essentially, do you believe that all kids can learn? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, do you believe that poor kids come up? And we made it a disqualifying question. So if you said no, then like you just did not become, no matter what, no matter who recommended you, no matter whatever, it was like, if you don't believe that all kids can learn. And it was shocking how many people were just like, and we tra- we we actually did trainings with our staff so that you could ask it without bias. So we're like, do you think that kids from high need communities can achieve the same grade level standards as students from wealthy communities? And people will come up with these elaborate explanations about why not. They'd be like, no, poverty is really hard and like they just can't learn. And you're like, what? Uh, so that was interesting. Uh, and I had one, one, one woman I interviewed, I interviewed her. She goes, well, colored kids just like can't. Do that. And I'm like, I said, color? Oh. Color. literally, we're, we're like, sit at the table. And yeah, I'm like, color? we're like, you know, it's a big interview room. And, learn. and I don't even know how to stop the interview fast enough, but we have to go do the questions. And like, I built the system so I can't like not do it. But I'm like, she just called these kids colored and she's like 25. Yeah. It was really, it was yeah. something. I learned a lot. And welcome to Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know we are on time. I want to, you, you you go ahead direct. I'll hold it to whenever I get a chance. All right. I can yeah. do my final thought too if I need to. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Listen, uh, yeah, we're, we're up against time, but I do. Tomorrow's Dr. King's, you know, uh, recognized and celebrated birthday, you know, uh, I, DeRay, I know you would talk to these brothers about watching their BLTs, you know, consumption. Um, I often talk about, you know, folks, teachers, educators need to watch their BLDs when they're talking about uh, Martin Luther King, you know, Dr. King. They only want to talk about boycotts or, you know, uh, love or dreams or speeches, but not the other aspects. And we opened up with Chris talking about things beyond the BLDs. You know, my man Gabe Bryant said they wanted, they literally want to turn uh, Dr. King into Santa Claus, you know, this jolly dreamer, uh, when there's so much more about this man uh, that people should learn from. So I want to start with DeRay, like what should people be teaching uh, about Dr. King? What should we remember about Dr. King? And what about his message most resonates with you in present day? Well, this this year, I'd say, you know, the disillusionment at the end, the like, you know, I believed all these things and and I realize now how hard uh, it is to do. So like the later works I'm more interested in. And there's that new documentary out. I don't know if you've seen uh, if you've seen a pre-screen or seen it since it came out, uh, but about how much the FBI just like hounded him and attacked him. Mm, And like, I I hope that that, that's what people talk about. Yeah. So the so the short version is that the full files about King don't come out until 2027. Mm -hmm. uh, But there's a set of people. People who know what they did and you know it's a it's a documentary yeah, they kind of released a teaser amount of the file right you know yeah yeah so so that's what i want uh and you know for my work the police were a core part of what their grievance was back then and that remains a core part of of our grievance today yeah yeah ankrum what, what do you think about the message that most resonates what would you hope that your teachers uh you know talk about or teach about or remember about dr king I defer my time to the speaker. 
<laughs> he already went. <laughs> I'm gonna suspend Ray. I'm gonna put him in. No, go ahead. I'm just, I'm just gonna suspend him. He, he's just gonna be one of the statistics of suspension any second now. I mean, listen. I, hey, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do you have more to add? He, the brother, yielded his time. Okay, nothing else. Yes. The, the gentleman had, from Baltimore has passed it back to the group. Um, I would say, uh, as far as King is concerned, I, I, I think that some of his more radical views towards the end. Uh, that did not come, that didn't get a chance to fully develop and form, uh, that I think morphed and grew with Fred Hampton, uh, uh, with his uh, with his Rainbow Coalition. Uh, Fred Hampton came up with the Rainbow Coalition. You should be teaching your kids about what that was. And it was really for poor people of any race and all colors and basically saying you deserve better and we can do better. And I think that that's, that's never really taught in schools. You have to kind of read beyond uh, to learn that as opposed to um, the way in which they try to whitewash Dr. King and make him this super peaceful, docile guy. He was actually pretty frustrated. Uh, he was pretty frustrated and upset and, and, and had a lot of self-doubt about what he was doing at times just because uh, of all the pushback he was getting and the things that the personal attacks on him and his family and his life. So I would say that part about Dr. King. Mm. Stuart? I mean, Dr. King, Malcolm X, others in the in the last days of their lives, they were making movements um, uh, intellectually, philosophically, spiritually, and they have been frozen in time because America killed them. And and I think all the celebrations that we do, and I was only half joking at the beginning of this show when I said I thought, uh, I think that we should reconsider whether or not uh, celebrating the way that we do with Dr. King is the thing to do. I think in his final days, the, the, the best you can do to honor him is to revive him in his final days and think about what he was thinking about at that time. And he, he knew he was in trouble, I think, and was forecasting that he was in trouble. He said to you, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the other side. I might not get there with you. That whole thing. I think some of us today feel like we got over that mountain and we're on the other side when when actually happened was we were arrested on the way up the mountaintop uh, spiritually, intellectually. We were turned into consumerists who consumed all the wrong things for two generations. And we not on the other side. We are still on the same side that he was on when he died. So there is no celebration to be had. The celebration will come when militarism, racism, sexism are all defeated. When we have the beloved community, we can stop and rest and sing. We shall overcome and wear fancy suits to fancy breakfasts in white owned uh, hotels um, to be broadcast on white owned TV stations. But until then, we need a solid, multiracial, multi-class um, um, justice movement that we don't have right now. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and until we have that, Like the celebration part of this or the rest, the day of rest, there is no day of rest. There should be a day of service. There should be a day of fighting. There should be a day of justice. So that's that. my my final word on that is just to say this. Um, Do whatever you want to do tomorrow, but don't act like you're on the other side that he predicted for us. Remember that you're not. Remember that he told you that he might not get there with you and he didn't because America killed him. Right. There is nothing uh, you can put him on a stamp. You can put him on a Wheaties box. You can have General Mills run a breakfast with his name on it. You could do whatever you want to do. We are still not free. We are still a militarist society that has poor people in it who can't eat. And that's a problem. Yeah. 
you guys have been listening to another episode of Freedom Friday. We're not done. I know, I know, I know. Absolutely. I mean, and I would just say, you know, add to that, I, I think, and, and I think Michelle just put it in there. I, you know, I would push educators to really look at how he analyzed education, schools, uh, how he looked at power and what he said, you know, as far as the difference between uh, fighting against uh, public institutions that were segregating versus having our own schools and having uh, black teachers teaching black children, uh, like what that actually meant to him and what what that meant as far as like seceding power, ceding power. Um, to those who would try to take it from our uh, from our communities and everything else about the three isms that, you know, that uh, you just brought up. Well, listen, I know we're a little over time. Let's go through. Uh, DeRay, we'll ask you to go next to last about your uh, your final know. thoughts. But, you know, want to start off with uh, Dr. Cole. Yeah. You, know, you had something else to say. You know, please blend it in. Yeah. Oh, and DeRay, your, your picture went away. I don't know if you were aware of it, brother. Uh, one, I just wanted to thank you for coming. And I hope you felt jovial and welcome and had a good time with us. And I also know you got a really nice show uh, and hopefully the hands get an invite. Uh, <laughs> at least Sharif. At least, at least Sharif. Uh, I promise I won't bring the stogie. My to hell with Sharif. I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the final, the, the, my final thought uh, is, is, is just a quick story. And this is my right hand to God and Sister Jamoke can, can, can attest to this. We, everybody always says that, you know, you get the poorest, the, 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 the newest teachers in these schools and all that stuff. Well, we wanted to take some of our worst performing schools. And we said we will offer bonuses. We will offer bonuses and more attractive salary for the most for those that want to take up the task and that have been super successful. And we also said that in order to catch kids up, we had to extend the day or do a Saturday school. And guess what? The parents was with it. Like this, they was with it, right? Um, and then they said that they wanted it. This our 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 board member who was Jamoke at the time was with it. Like, and we were ready to bring in these these teachers that were on the hill that were like, nah, I want to take on this challenge. And if you got kids at the grade level, there was another bonus for you. And the union killed it. They mm-hmm. killed it. They mm-hmm. and parents will and they never know. So in my final thought, I would say demand that these union meetings be televised, be public for folks. And I think all school board meetings, whether it's charter, traditional, private or whatever, I think that all of them should be open. It, you know, I know there's closed door sessions that have to happen, but these are the conversations that don't make it out there. These are the things that that people don't hear. And for my final thought, I'll just leave you all with that is that the way that we come in at these police unions and we saw that police union chiefs helped orchestrate this raid at the Capitol and you had a bunch of teachers there. These unions are no longer untouchable, man. They are not untouchable. They are not. They are. They are not above reproach. Um, put pressure on these systems the same way that we've been putting pressure on these police unions. And I think we'll start to begin to see different things for black children. Hey, DeRay, I know you got to go. Um, can you just share your final thoughts with the uh, with the audience? Yeah, my camera died, um, which is why I went off camera. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's an honor to be here. I'm excited about what is possible. And I hope that this moment is a chance for us to reimagine public education and not just sort of redo the same things that we've been doing. So I'm looking forward to the other side of the pandemic. Uh, and hopefully that turns into something better for black and brown kids. So good to be here. All right, man. Thanks Thank again for, for coming through. Invite, Before you lose us, we need that invite, D-Ray. Yeah, you, we, easy, easy. Welcome oh. to come to the pod. You know, this is, we've, <laughs> the pod's been four years now. It feels like forever. Cool. See you.
All right, man. Thanks again. Yeah, this dude Charles be caping hard. Oh, yeah. What's your What's your final? Oh, wait, wait, let's, 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 let's Cole don't 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 take the bait. <laughs> don't take the bait. All right. Uh, Stuart, what's your? Well, you gave your final thought, right? Uh, Ankrum, what's your final hey, thought? Did I give my final thought? I thought you did. If not, oh, okay. All right. Never no. mind. Go ahead. No, let Ankrum go. I don't we'll, even we'll, you know, we'll let yeah, bad lighting go after. Your, what's your you know, final thought, so, Ray? And yeah, Ray, what's yours? Taping about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go so, ahead, Ray. My final thought is this: right, it's a common myth that uh, black parents are hard to reach. Black parents are not hard to reach. Brown parents are not hard to reach. They just don't have time for your bullshit, right? So if you come at parents correct, then parents will get back to you in a timely fashion, but it has to be centered on their kid and helping their kid. Anything else, parents is going to dismiss you, and they should because you're wasting their time. So if you want to have fruitful conversations with parents, approach them in manners that are correct. That is my final thought. Cool. Stuart, and no, you didn't have you, you went last with the Dr. King question. So what's your final thought for the evening? Um, well, this is a good, you know, show 98. So I'm just mm-hmm. excited that we are making it this far, brothers. We keep going and our lighting gets better. Our cameras get better. Our action gets better. So here we go. Um, 98 almost uh, um, in the tank. I will say this since it's the day before um, um, in this important holiday, which is um Never have I thought that there was a time more than now than we should really keep the eye on the prize. And the eye on the prize really is our young people. The most precious thing, Dr. King said, the most precious thing that the that the uh, black community possesses is the intellectual development of our young boys and girls. That's exactly what he said about it when he was asked about education. And he said, why would we, um, knowing that, why would we entrust that to people who think so poorly of our race? He said that too, Dr. King, right? Why would we turn over the intellectual development of our children to people that dislike them so badly? You can um, you can hit me up with all kinds of DMs and, and comments if you want to and be mad about this. But I'm going to ask you to look up the research on um, white attitudes about black students and white teacher attitudes about black students. And even as you, you all mentioned on this show, middle class black teachers attitudes about black students. And what you're going to find is a wealth of research that says, they do feel they, they do think very poorly of our students. And because they think very poorly of our young people, our young people should not be um, guaranteed to them. The per pupil income for our students should not be guaranteed to any system. This, uh, our children are not products or commodities. The amount of money that the government sets aside in a lot for their education should be theirs and their parents should have full control over how that money gets spent and where it gets spent and who gets to get some of it. So stop trying to trap our kids in these starter prisons. Stop trying to like put them through processing centers that don't teach them what they need to learn to be free and, and to be free people. And, uh, um, and, and, and anybody who stands in the way of doing that, let's just be, let's put it down just for everybody. Anybody who stands in the way of do, doing that is an enemy of the black race. Anybody who stands in the way of parents having full control over the allotment of edu- uh, education dollars that are meant to educate their children after 400 years and takes that power away from them is an enemy of our people. That's all I got. Cool, cool, cool. Dr. Cole. Oh, I just went, brother. That's all, right. all right. My bad. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, What's I don't have much thought, to, Yeah, I don't have much to add. You know, the one thing I do want to check out that one uh that piece that that uh, I think somebody in the chat said is is uh streaming on Amazon about uh Dr. King and the FBI. I would encourage uh people there are three books that I think talk about this one is fictional and it talks about Dr. King and Malcolm and how you know, as they were progressing and it's uh, the man who cried, I am. And they talk a little bit about, you know, the FBI, um, you know, involvement uh, in, in both uh, assassinations. Uh, but the other two that are not fiction, um, uh, one is Agents of Repression. You know, I, I think people should read that. And that's about, you know, FBI, Cointelpro uh, there, you know, and, you know, how they were agents of repression of the movement for black liberation. Uh, I, th- I think that is a must read. I think that is a, a, a must uh, have. Uh, and then the other one is the Judas factor, uh, which mm-hmm. talks about, you know, just. Mm-hmm you know, uh, Malcolm's and, and not just him, but just the betrayals, uh, that, you know, you know, Malcolm's bodyguard was, you know, was with the, was an undercover police officer and, and so forth. So understanding both the repression as well as the Judas factor, I think are, are really, uh, you know, really crucial, you know, 98th show excited about that excited as we marched to a hundredth, you know, gave me inspiration. You know, I was like, I didn't realize, uh, you know, Posse is America's four years old. Like, I was like, wow, it does seem like, you know, just, uh, you know, I know for him, it seems like forever, but I'm like, wow, it, it, that time flew by, you know, remember when it first came off. And I think ours flew by. I think, you know, this was, we first started uh, our show um, in January, um, you know, talking about Dr. King and, and, um, oh, you know, right. and that impact, right? Like, and so that was uh, one of so- our... Uh, you know, that was our first episode was Dr. King was was a big part of the subject. And so I'm just appreciative that DeRay, um, you know, made time to come, you know, to come on. And well, Reed, a year ago today, we was at MPU's uh, inauguration. We were, man. That was a special, you know, as y'all in know. New that Orleans was, hey, at a black owned hotel. That was one of the very, few black owned hotels. That's right. And that was today, a year ago today. Yeah. Wow. Was it today? Mm-hmm. Wow. I got the here today from our yeah. uh, from our, our panel. Yeah, that was a very special show for me. As as you all know, you know that was uh, that was me and my mother's last trip together. We would we would go a lot of places, but you know she felt so good about the the launch of National Parent Union. You know, seeing all of these you know these parents uh, advocating not just for their children but for children across America, and she just felt like that was fantastic. And I know I had a great time as well. I know man. we got to roll out of here, but you know what the craziest thing for me about that day was number mm. one. Loving that it was like uh, uh, um, an opportunity with all of us. The pictures that we have are with your mom there, uh, uh, which still to me ring out as special. But um, on the day that I was leaving, Malcolm X's daughter was speaking to to the group. And somehow nobody seemed to tell me that until I was on the way to the airport. I think they did. It was also in a, in a ton of emails, but yeah, nah. everybody Ray I mean, was Ray was supposed to tell me and he did. Everybody so. was traveling a whole lot at that time. So I'm sure, you know, it just it ended up getting yeah. lost. But you know, Ilyasa Shabazz being there, you know, and you know, was also super special. Um, you know, and, and the other thing I just want to shout out as part of my closing thought is, you know, if you haven't checked out the other shows um under the eight black hands umbrella, please do. Um uh, they've been going, they've been going great, you know. 
the hers, the cure, um, AOS podcast. Ray's been busy. Yeah, Ray's Ray been super busy. And it reminds me of, you know, uh, a, another Dr. King's quotes where he said, if you want to change the world, pick up a pen and write. And I think this like this podcast system, what he was talking about was raise your voice, elevate your voice, expose citizen uh, Stuart, what you talked about, like make sure that people, the f- communities are aware. And I think these podcasts that that Ray has been super producing uh, behind the scenes helps people elevate the voice and tell the truth about what's going on because that informs our parents, that informs the citizenry, and that allows people to organize around ideas and push for change. Well, so Ray, that would be uh, Podcast Diddy. Podcast, not Ray, Podcast he, Diddy. He, he put the name up there for a reason and and, and Sharif, uh, uh, hopefully I'm not out of line. I, I definitely would love for us to Anytime somebody says I'm not out of line, no, no, no. that means they out of line. No, well, I'm, I'm asking you for permission um, because this is the year anniversary of the last time the four of us got to be with Mama Reef. So I, I would like to have this kind of be in her honor. And, and you know, if you want to just say something about her to end this show, I think it's only fitting that you ended up producing and hosting today's show. And we didn't even that did that wasn't on purpose. It just happened that way. So yeah, just happened, yeah. I, I mean, if you want the space to, you know. No, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, what I'll just say is, you know, my mother was a was an educator and she she loved she loved her people. She loved uh, the community, you know, and she would often talk about I remember one of the times when she was uh, sick. You all called me from the uh, you know, while you were doing the show. Ray called on his phone and. You know, and she I was like, oh, you know, this. I just told her I, I didn't even think I was going to answer first. She's like, answer it. See, you know, see what he said. And I, you know, he was on the show and, you know, I was just able to, to you know, share with you all what she said. And what she said was keep fighting, you know, like keep fighting. You know, one of her uh, big things was about just justice, educational justice, racial justice, environmental justice was the main three that she spent her time on. And she said, you know, people, you know, you want peace, fight for justice because Peace will justice will give birth to peace. And so I'll just end with that. Like, let us keep fighting. Let us keep pushing, because at the end of the day, educational justice, racial justice, social justice, environmental justice, it's all connected. um, And we have to continue to fight for it. So you've been listening to the 98th episode of the Eight Black Hands. Appreciate y'all brothers and looking forward to um, 99 and then 100. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.